Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, February the 11th, 2024. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on X at TalkingMetsNoG. And check me out on your favorite podcasting service, Apple, Spotify, whatever you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on the newsletter, substack.com slash G, And I want to welcome in the good folks from the fan-sided podcasting network for supporting this show. Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Yes, it's Super Bowl Sunday. Yes, we had contemplated not doing a show, but I decided to try something different. I don't know if it's going to work, but I think it's a little bit of fun. I think it'll be something that you'll enjoy, a chance to take a break. Right before we start the 2024 campaign, the journey begins Pitchers and Catchers, Valentine's Day, February 14th. We've already, if you've been over at the newsletter, I've already been able to whet your appetite, talking a little bit about the projected 26-man roster. Check that out if you're a subscriber. And we're going to have our big Pitchers and Catchers, like we do every year, show right around either the day of Pitchers and Catchers or the day after, so there'll be more Talking Mets to come. But with it being Super Bowl Sunday, and you guys might be getting ready for the big game, getting your food, maybe you know, enjoying it with friends, family, whatever. I figured there's a bunch of you out there that probably don't really care and love baseball and want to talk about baseball and think about the 2024 Mets or think about Mets baseball in general. So what I've done here is I've teamed up with one of our favorites here at the Talking Mets podcast, Anthony Rivera, Subway Shea, and we have what, and I'm dating myself a little bit here, we're having a movie night. There used to be the old blockbuster night, and maybe if you're a little bit older than that, like I am, you used to have your local video store, Video Vault, or Video Haven, or whatever it was called by you, and you would have movie night on Friday night or Saturday night. You'd get a VHS, you'd all sit down, either you or your family or, you know, whatever, and you'd watch a movie, and it'd be movie night. So here, what is movie night at the Talking Mets podcast? No, we're not watching a baseball movie. What Anthony and I did is go back into the vault and watch an old Mets game, and I know this is something that's been going on a little bit. Bill Simmons over at The Ringer does uh, this with movies, actual movies. It's called The Rewatchables. Here I decided, okay, you know, how can we do this? Let's do it during a period where maybe there's not a lot going on. Maybe we're a little bit tired of talking about the hot stove. I mean, it looks like the Mets roster is set. Yeah, you could go on and debate the DH position and so on and, you know, all these other big free agents that are still sitting around and maybe you could vulture some of them. We've done that. I think, over and over and over again this offseason. One of the, the worst hot stoves we've had maybe ever since doing this show. And I think now it's let's take a break, let's take a blow, and we could do one of two things. We could just take the week off, or we could try something fun. So Anthony and I rewatched opening day 1988, April 4th, Monday, April 4th, 1988, a game that the Mets would go on to win 10-6, to an opening day win for Doc Gooden, who was not good, the save uh, by Randy Myers. In odd fashion, almost like, you know, pre-pitch clock and turn of the century, it was a untidy three hours and 30 minutes. 
It was in Montreal's Olympic Stadium. Over 55,000 watched this ball game. So that's a rarity when it came to the Montreal Expos and attendance over there. This is in the 80s, the heyday of where the Expos were still trying to find their way back to contention. They seem to be that team, and I'll talk about that with Anthony, that every year in the NL East, the old NL East, it would be about the Mets and the Cardinals. I know the Cubs snuck in one year, but the Expos always would be that team, would be the next team coming with Hall of Famers at some point like Andre Dawson and Rock Reigns and solid players like Tim Wallach and Dennis Martinez and, and, and Pascal Perez and you know so on. Andres Galarraga, the big cat, was on those teams. So, um, And then there was a number of component players, really solid big leaguers. So the Expos were always that team under Buck Rogers that was the next team coming, and they were disappointing. And then the year after when this particular game took place 1989 they had a great start to the season they went all in they traded Randy Johnson for Mark Langston trying to get a you know basically take an opportunity at a pennant with Langston who was an ace and you know the rest is history the Expos faded Johnson became a Hall of Famer they would have lost them anyway they wouldn't have been able to keep him but who knows you know Randy Johnson early career Randy Johnson wasn't the vintage late career Randy Johnson but he was a pretty good pitcher that the Expos could have used so uh, why did we pick this game? Why did I pick this game? You know, because Anthony and I had a conversation about it. I-, I just wanted to try a game from the 80s. You know, it doesn't have to be when we do these, and I think we'll do them again, and I'd love your feedback. Mike Silvat, talking about podcast.com, no G. Um, why did we pick this particular game? I think it was just because what's most known about this game is Strawberry hitting the roof, and I didn't say that before. Yes, that's a big reason for picking this game, but it's also opening day. Um, it's the start of a fresh new season. The 88 season was one of the most disappointing ends in Mets history. You guys know the Mike Sosha home run, Oral Hershiser. And this game takes place months earlier, six, seven months earlier, way before any of us are even thinking about any of that stuff. All we know at this point going into opening day 1988 is the Mets had a very injury-riddled, disappointing end to 1987. Terry Pendleton's home run there on September the 11th, 1987, that essentially ended the Mets' hopes that night. Still is sticking in their craw. The Cardinals are coming off a pennant. It's still Mets-Cardinals in, in the division. Uh, the Mets would, would do early work of the Cardinals that season. In just a few weeks, they'd be uh, sweeping them and really putting them back on their heels. So, you know, April, opening day 1988, the Mets still are feeling the after effects of a championship. It's been less than two years since they won. They're in the midst of this dynasty. Can they repeat? Can they get whatever's left out of this veteran team, out of this dynasty that still can be? Opening day 1988, all that stuff is still on the table. So that's a conversation at that point. So um, it'll be interesting. Anthony and I watched it separately in its totality the entire game. We found it on YouTube, so no shortcuts. We didn't just watch the highlights or whatever it may be. We watched the entire game, and uh, this is our first stab at this kind of thing. So sit back, get your popcorn out, enjoy the Talking Mets movie night with Anthony Rivera and Mike Silva. Maybe you, while you're listening to us talk, could watch some highlights from that April 4th, 1988 game. Maybe you have memories of watching that game or talking to your buddies or something like that. Whatever. Uh, Love to see if you like this endeavor, this little not project, but this this little uh, spinoff here a little bit of, uh, you know, letting our hair down on the Talking Mets podcast. So, all right, sit back, get your popcorn out, enjoy April 4th, 1988, Anthony Rivera, Mike Silva, Anthony Rivera, Subway to Shea, Mike Silva, Talking Mets podcast, talk about rewatching that opening day game. If you're enjoying the Super Bowl, enjoy it. If not, sit back, relax, and let's go back in time with Anthony Rivera and Mike Silva here. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll be back. With movie night, talking Mets movie night, right after this. And five to one, San Francisco over the Dodgers. Bottom of the fifth inning. Speaking of home runs, there's a long drive. That ball is out of here. Home run, Daryl Strawberry. That ball may have hit the lights up there. It may have hit the top of the stadium. I think it did. Daryl slowed down. I can't believe it. That ball hit the top of the stadium. He's going to get hurt. Uh -uh. (laughs) Nuh-uh. He might get hurt with that swing, but not with that handshake. (laughs) It's tough getting down that low when you're 6'6". Oh, boy. You can get anywhere you want to with that kind of strength. Boy, has he hammered the ball today. First game of the season for the Mets. This ball hits the top of the stadium. 
right, we're back. And as promised, it's movie night and joining me. So let's just take a little time machine here. Andy Rivera and Mike Silva, I'm 47. I don't know if you want to give your age out, Anthony. But let's pretend we're kids and we're in our parents' basement because that's the joke that everybody makes about what you and I do. And we're hanging out because we don't have any girlfriends yet. I'm not married. You don't, you're don't. you not married. Nothing like that. And we have nothing else better to do. So we're going to watch a movie together. So what you and I decided to do is go back in time, make it a blockbuster night. All these references that I put out there, which will undoubtedly get me in trouble because people then say, oh, I don't want to hear about anybody that was pre-Jose Reyes. I don't want to hear what's blockbuster. No streaming. Like we're not streaming, even though we technically we stream the game because I don't have a VHS anymore. But movie night here, Talking Mets, Anthony Rivera, Mike Silva, Anthony Rivera, Subway to Shea podcast at Subway to Shea. You guys know him on uh, X. Obviously, talking about this podcast. So what we're doing here is, uh, and I know that Bill Simmons does something in regards to rewatching movies. I know Evan Roberts over at his Rico Bronya podcast, I think, is doing something similar. So I got the idea. I said, okay, let's do something cool here. Let's rewatch a game. I call up Anthony on the week. I go, let's rewatch a game. Let's pick a game. Rewatch it. It doesn't have to be a playoff game or anything crazy. And let's talk about it for the hour that we're on the air. And we decided, well, I decided, and Anthony agreed, to do opening day, April 4th, 1988. The game that, it's an opening day game, 88. There's a lot of, you know, things about that season. And it's the strawberry hits the roof game. But there's so much more interesting stuff going on. So, Anthony, that's a pretty long-winded intro. Welcome to movie night, Talking Mets movie night. Inaugural Talking Mets movie night, Super Bowl this weekend, but you and I are talking baseball and watching a game from 36 years ago. So maybe you and I are the nut jobs. How you doing? Hey, I, I miss Blockbuster, so this is a fun night for me. Um, I'm 37. I'll leave it. I'll so leave that out. So you do remember? There. You do remember Blockbuster? I'm oh, not. Of course, of course. Seven. You're making to... me work because that's nine years. So basically, I remember starting to do Blockbuster. I used to do the old personal private video stores like that's how you really want to know how old i am like the blockbuster didn't exist yet blockbuster came after the initial foray and the little VHS, mom and pop shots uh the right? the mom and pop shops the mom and pop yeah. shops like i think it was called video vault in my neighborhood bensonhurst whatever it may be i remember when we first got a vcr and now i'm going down the memory lane and people are going to really get mad i think one of the first movies i watched in the mid 80s on a vhs was like star wars empire strikes back so, like, that's kind of like, that was a big deal. Like, oh, my God, we're watching a movie at home in a VCR. Like, you don't know how big that was yeah. back in the 80s. So, you and I going back watching April 4th, 1988, Mets opening day, our first uh, uh, movie night here. You watched it. We didn't watch it together. I watched it. You watched it. So, let me start with this before we get into the meat and potatoes here. Any, like, overarching observation that came to you, like, what is, like, the big wow takeaway watching a game from that many years ago that I remember listening to on the radio because I did not have cable at that point. My neighborhood was not wired for cable, so I only got Channel 9 games, and that wasn't a Channel 9 game. That was a sports channel game. Well, I started watching games right around 1998, so this was the last year of Tim McCarver as a uh, Mets announcer, so I didn't really get to see him as much. Ralph Kiner was there, and and Fran Healy, Fran Healy, uh, you know, he doesn't get talked about a lot these days, but he was a big part of my uh, growing up. Him and Howie Rose uh, being the announcers, but going and they back criticized to, Healy. If X yeah. was around back then, oh Healy, oh of course, murdered. he was yeah, getting he, murdered on the. I remember the old fan home forum. I used to get he used to get murdered on that on that one. He he isn't as rah rah as you know a Howie Rose is and as a Gary Cohen is. You don't get that type of energy for him. He's kind of more of a straight shooter. Um, and, 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 you know, you even get some rise out of Tim McCarver. You got a rise out of him when, uh, Dallas strawberry hit that, that home run. That was like, what did they say? 180 feet. He said that if that stadium was open, that there was a possibility that that could have went out of the stadium. That's how high that that home run went. So yeah, that, uh, some little things is, you know, I don't know how people back then, if they got up out of their seats, went to go get a snack went to go to the bathroom or did a couple things and had this in the background, how they're able to keep up because, you know, my day is now I'm so blessed to have all the background graphics and all that stuff. You don't have that there. You nope. maybe once or twice in the game, you get to see them put up the score and right. every inning you'd get who's the next three batters are. And they, fl- they do a quick flash, like two outs, quick. very quick, really quick. Like it was a clean, like that is an interesting, like, 
first observation is the screen is it's about baseball. It's not about a scroll at the bottom. You're not have the little uh, bug which says download the SNY app or you yeah. know all that other stuff. Uh, you have a couple of in-game reads. That's really it. But it's about baseball. What was interesting was how historically that was like the Expos' first home opener because they had kept mentioning that one got snowed out, another yeah. one was canceled because of the strike, and then you know with the roof. I forgot. I think that might have been the first or second year with the roof. And um, that was a big deal. Now, that roof, many years later, if you remember, it used to have issues where it would get stuck open. And I think there was all sorts of problems with it. Uh, the whole thing was cursed. And what, what I find funny is that if you go to the box score, it says it was a sellout crowd of 55,000. I didn't feel watching the game, and maybe it's the old VHS, it didn't sound like a very loud crowd. Uh, I saw empty seats in the upper deck early. They didn't really pan the stadium that much. It didn't feel like an opening day sellout. Montreal at times, and this predates you, if you go to 88, 89, 90, you know, the Expos were that team in the East, and they mentioned it briefly during the broadcast, that it was always Mets Cardinals, and once in a while the Phillies like earlier in the 80s were a good team and they really weren't before yeah. the Pirates became in there. The Expos were always that team every spring. But this is the team. This is their mm -hmm. year. You know, and and they and they were perpetually this 500 disappointing team, and I think that culminated with the Mark Langston trade a year later, which didn't pan out because they were having a great season in '89, and they fizzled out after the Langston trade. So the Expos were the team, and I remember in '87 or '88 watching a spring training baseball uh, this week in baseball. The Expos were pretty demonstrative how they felt that they were as equal of the Mets, or if not better. And uh, you know that was a you know it wasn't a great Expos team '88. But they had some, you know, they had Hall of Famers. They had Tim Raines on the team. Huey Brooks was a solid player. Tim Wallach was a solid player. Yeah. Dennis Martinez did not have a good game this day, uh, but was a really solid pitcher. You know, really solid pitcher. Good, really good pitcher. So, you know, it was interesting to see Olympic Stadium, which has been closed for many years, and people pine for Montreal baseball again. But, you know, it it, it tell, shows you why baseball in Montreal, at least round first round of it, it just didn't feel like the fans were all that into it, to be honest with you. You probably think that the only um, interesting Montreal teams was when Gary Carter was there and they went to the NLCS. And then that 94 team that kind of got cut short because of the strike. And they were well on their way to a big run where I think they had Pedro and they had Randy Johnson and maybe they had Larry Walker at the time. But that that, that was one of the teams that I thought um, had a, uh, you know, was probably the best of of Montreal when I was started watching them uh, in in ninety eight with the Mets. I I didn't ever ever felt that that stadium was packed that day. I thought it was uh, in in by, the by the it, late nineties turn of the century Expos. That it was, was. that nothing. The energy the wasn't there. I remember some Expos crowds that maybe were a little more energetic. Of course, people talk about the the early nineties crowds and yeah, when right before the strike. You know, maybe I'm picking on the Expos. It took them a while. That group that you see in eighty eight. It took them a while to figure out how to get to that next level. They actually had to rebuild again before they brought it back up on yeah. that. But the funny thing I'll start out with, I thought, which was interesting, was the on-the-field interview, McCarver, and you saw vintage Tim McCarver. So you talk about McCarver, um, I mean, a really good baseball announcer, a guy that got roasted on the national game. But I grew up listening to Rusty Staub, Ralph, Tim McCarver, and I love Gary Keith and Ron. But we have been blessed with – I mean, McCarver, Zabriskie, Steve Zabriskie, yeah. and Kiner. And not so much Fran Healy because I didn't have cable. They were more Channel 9, McCarver and and uh, Kiner. They were really good, and McCarver's really good. And you have him interviewing Davey on the field and a very candid Davey Johnson, not a typical modern-day interview – like in and out with two questions, like, you know, what we saw with Tom Thibodeau on the sidelines on an NBA game or, you know, uh, Sunday Night Baseball where they were interviewing Buck Showalter. It's like, all right, can, can we end this now? It was like, hey, we didn't have a good year last year. I was a little worried about this. Like, Davey was very candid with Tim before the game. Yeah, it's funny, too, because in the last year that I got to see Tim, he kind of looked like he was just tired of being yep. the Mets announcer. And, you know, you go back and you watch – you know, obviously they were really good in 86 and that whole run from, what was it, about 85 
to to 90, right? Well, you, you know, they were still good. 89, 90 was probably the the final run for them. But he just seemed like he had more energy to him and he was more interested in what was going on. A lot of the big plays, uh, you know, got him going. And by the time I started watching, it just seemed like he was tired and, and you know, done with baseball. And, you know, it's funny that you brought up this week in baseball because even before that, once we got into the intro, I could have thought I heard Mel Allen. That was Mel Allen. Yeah, show, for right? some that reason was... they were using. Yeah, they were using Mel Allen to do some uh, voiceover work, which was was kind of weird if you really think about yeah, it. Yeah, because but... he's always been – he's like Mr. Yankee of announcers yeah, from this the week 50s, in baseball, 60s. Yeah. And... I guess Sports Channel did – again, my context with Sports Channel is poor because I didn't start watching – I didn't have cable till 1992. They didn't why, you know, that was the era where the infrastructure wasn't everywhere. I was not in Manhattan. They started in Manhattan. Yeah. I was in outer borough and I was Brooklyn, which back in the eighties, Brooklyn, you know, that's on the moon at that point. Right. So you do that. So I thought that was the first interesting thing. The other thing right away, and I don't know if you picked this up so much future foreshadowing going on. Number one, how many times did they mentioned Lenny Dykstra with the with the muscles? Yes. And oh Lenny Dykstra is a three-run home run in the ball game, the dead center, and Montreal looked like a little bit of a launching pad that day. McCarver makes a reference of it later in the game. I guess the Yankees had a spring training game there, and they had thought that the place was a launching pad. But foreshadowing of Lenny Dykstra, a lot of references to the muscles. And I remember – that was a theme because as a young man, I remember in spring training, that was a big deal how big he came to spring training. And they asked him what he was doing. He said, I'm taking special vitamins. So nobody's thinking steroids. Nobody's talking steroids. I even think like the, they, you could tell that like that would not be something in today's game. Those kind of muscles that would be like, how, how did this guy get so big? You know, yeah. that kind of thing. The second thing is there was a couple of references. I don't know if you picked up to how good David Cohn could be. They brought up how Danny Jackson, who has just traded from the Royals to the Reds, and Cone, a couple of ex-Royals, were really good pitchers. And they predicted that Danny Jackson could be a 20-game winner. He would in Cincinnati that year. And then they mentioned Willie Wilson saying how they good they thought David Cone, how David Cone could be a 20-game winner. Now, Coney's coming out of the bullpen the first month, and he came out of the bullpen and was shaky this game. But think about that foreshadowing. I mean, so much foreshadowing throughout the game about things that would happen very shortly. Dykstra becoming a home run hitter, steroids, Cone would win 20 games that year and become a, a big part of that Mets rotation. Yeah, those are definitely two big takeaways from the game, and especially because they kept mentioning, like you said, they kept mentioning how big Lenny Dykstra was getting and, and the muscles, and it, it should, you know, you look back and you think about it. and He you, didn't look uh, so big. like old, Compared to Lenny coming up, yeah, but I looked at him like by today's player standards – I didn't think he like that is a takeaway. The players yeah. were smaller and I'm not, let's not talk steroids. Like the game was different. I didn't feel the pace was really different because it was a three hour and 30 minute game. I'll get to that in a little bit, but the players were, I mean, I thought if Lenny was considered big, I don't think he's that big by today's standards. Do you agree with that? Or maybe I'm missing something. Uh, he, he did look a little bit bigger. Um, from his, you know, obviously maybe. 86, 87, yeah. you could see a little bit. Um, he, he, I think he even gets bigger by the time he gets to the Phillies, he gets sure. you know, a little bit bigger then. And then with Cone, you know, I, I, you talk about them, not like, like the game, not really changing, you know, he comes into the game in, I think it was the sixth inning. The Dwight did not have a good, a Awful really good game by Dwight. But in by Dwight Gooden standards, like it, it's a decent game. I think he only uh, he did give he up gave four him eleven runs. hits, which was like a record for him. It, it and I think you started one. to see the beginning of the decline, yeah, of Dwight Gooden because that was like eighty eight. If you had advanced metrics back then, and there was, I'm sure Bill James was talking about it, but the mainstream wasn't. Dwight Gooden was not dominant anymore. Yeah, he was good. He was not even the ace of that staff. David Cohn was. Yeah, and and Cone comes in in the sixth, and right away Fran Healy's like, "Oh, Cone's coming in for the save." It's like these guys don't do this. No, and they're going through. And I think that was the intent. Yeah, I think that was the intent of Davey to bring Cone in. You know, Doc had gone five. He came out was like a seven four eight four game. He brings in Cone in the sixth. Here's the other thing, Anthony. They mention pitch count, but they only mention like you don't want them to throw too many pitches. We have no idea watching that game. How many pitches anybody throws? No idea. And I'm actually no, trying to see don't. if I could find it on the box score. 
And and I feel I, like Dennis Martinez threw a lot of pitches in that game. Right. Yeah. Um, you know what? Here's according to baseball reference. Interestingly enough, they're saying Doc threw 74 pitches in five innings. And they pulled him. And his strike to ball count was awful. It was like 52 strikes, 34. He had his his command was all he didn't have a very good curveball. Yeah. He was wild. It was not vintage Doc. And Cone threw 47 pitches in two and change. And Randy Myers threw 22 pitches and came in in the eighth inning. So your closer comes in in the eighth inning, and you got no velocity readings, no pitch out. Dennis Martinez in six innings threw 111 pitches. You are right. So your gut was right. But watching these games back then, we did not evaluate these guys on that. You pulled Doc because he was ineffective. You didn't pull Doc. And probably, you know what? I might have had Doc go another inning. At 74 yeah. pitches, I probably would have pushed him another inning. If I, but, but clearly, they knew something that we didn't. And maybe Davey just like, all right, enough. Spring training, first start, five innings. And they had mentioned that Doc was having a bad spring. So, again, no, um, no modern-day pitch scenarios that you go into it and all. they don't even they don't even get really in-depth in stats like they do nowadays because they have all the graphics back then like i i'm you, i just found out the pitch count now yep well, you go to baseball you. reference you yep. can't go find they don't tell you in the game nothing nothing at that point and do you feel i guess and be honest because you probably you know it's been a long time for me I've, i'm watching the game just like you today i don't know if i could li- i certainly had trouble living without the amenities that we have today so someone who lived without yeah. them for so many years, and like when they finally got a score bug, like score bug, like late nineties, was like, wow, I got the score in the bold strike, <laughs> like tiny, tiny in the corner, up in the right, and like that's not even close to what we got today with the catcher with the like even the balls and strikes. I'm like, well, did that hit the corner? Like you started there were so really many have... balls that I thought were strikes. The strike ball. Well, well, remember Dwight the strike zone Martinez. was a conversation. The strike yeah. zone and the ball that was actually get... in the beginning of the game. They were talking about all the new. Uh, and there was was it McCarver or Healy was talking to the home plate ump and, and explaining yeah. the new strike zone, which originally was from the armpit, right? And Not then the they letters pushed it down up. to the yeah. letters. Yeah. So you know, I found that uh, um, very. So I'm thinking about like the evolution of the strike zone. So the strike zone was definitely higher. Then it got like during the '90s, it went east to west. Like you, we were watching a game from the late '90s. There is so many balls called strikes in the corner. I'm like, oh, that's how Glavin became so good, right? That's that's true. You could see it here. It was more north south with the. I didn't think the strike zone was bad. There was certainly a lot more contact. So even a guy like Doc and Cone, who have deception and throw hard, and Myers, a hard thrower, which again we don't know the velo readings because they didn't have them on the scoreboard and for them, um, you know. Uh, I felt there was a lot more contact. I actually did a pitch count in my head on a, a, a randomly, and nobody really had a clock violation. I feel like we're leg- it really made me think, are we legislating a pace of play today in a way where I didn't feel like those guys were consciously trying to go quicker? Anybody. They were walking out of the box. They were taking their time. You know, um, There was pickoffs. Yeah. Like, it was a three-hour and 30-minute ball game because there was just a ton of base runners. That's it. Like That's the, the only um, reason why it was three hours and 30 minutes at that point. Even the balk was being discussed. Like, is this a balk? Is it not? Is he stepping over? Is he, like they, There was a whole bunch of discussion because Danny Martinez was uh, you know, back and forth with Lenny Dykstra. Dykstra was getting angry because he thought it was a balk. Yep. So, yep. yeah, well, that was a lot the of second rule. That was that. the year they wanted to enforce the balk. I guess they felt pitchers were going too quick to the set. And, you know, I felt there were cheap balks on Martinez. I think Doc got one. And I was looking at it because, you know, you really don't see any balks called anymore. Do you? Like, really, very rarely. I mean, that's kind of like you got to do something really dumb, like just a brain fart now to have a balk. Because these guys are so deliberate now. And yeah. their footwork. And they think they, they it's weird. I almost feel like, and I saw it, Martinez was trying to go up quick and pitch. up Like quick and pitch. And I don't know if that was intentional. That was just the way. But that year, I don't have the stats in front of me. I mean, they went wild calling balks that year. And it was like they they got their point out. Every once in a while, it's no different than the NHL and the football and, and the NBA. NBA is great for that. They'll go crazy calling stuff. Remember, like, 
earlier this year, the NBA, they were calling those dopey flopping calls like the first two weeks. I'm like, come on, give him a tech for him falling <laughs> over on a three-pointer. Like, come on. And then I think they realized this is just stupid. Let's just stop. Like the bulk went wild. And they were and I remember them going wild on that. So uh so that was that. They talked about the new strike zone, lowering it from the armpit, um, getting the 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 bulks and all those things uh, going on. Ralph, what funny is Ralph Kiner made a reference to long ball games of three hours because of uh the amount of pickoffs was really like his thing, which I personally think that was one of the reasons why games got so long in the last few years before the, the new rules. I think the pickoff rule had more impact than the, the second, the, the, the pitch clock. That's my opinion. Yeah. I have no science behind it, but I'm laughing as he's complaining. Now this game was again, three hours and 30 minutes, which Anthony, when you look at the amount of base runners were in this game, that's really not that bad. That's probably a four and change in, you know, three years ago. Same game, four and change, right? Yeah, you know Dwight, something like that. Dwight and, and uh, El Presidente definitely had a rough time on the mound throwing strikes, and you know I, I saw Martinez threw over against Lenny. It had to have been five or six times in one at bat, and and that was just a struggle. That that at bat took about I would have said ten minutes, just yeah. that that whole sequence alone. So yeah, th- th- I I do feel like the the rules that they put in place now makes it a little bit quicker. Um, I don't know how I feel about the pitch clock so much. I don't know if that messes with someone's body is that they have to quickly have to now exert another pitch in in, in succession. So uh, we'll see how it works out moving forward. Um, you know, I, another thing that I I you know took kind of took away from this game was uh. They really were pushing Kevin Elster as, oh, you know, the took next my words right big, out of my mouth. Yeah, yep. next big shortstop. Obviously, he takes over for Rafael Santana, who ends up going to the Yankees. And Kevin Elster had a really good game defensively and offensively this night. So they were kind of really pushing him as the next big thing at, at shortstop. Yeah, I mean, they actually said he was the top rated prospect in baseball. He had 300 the year before in Tidewater. Now, many people forget coming out of double A, they brought him up in 86 to play in the playoffs. And he actually, he made an error in the world series um, because I don't think Davey trusted Hojo at short and wanted somebody defensively, which was Elster's calling card and Elster's defense. If you look at him now, you go many years later, you've seen Ordonez. You've lived through Ordonez, probably the best defensive shortstop in Mets. Not probably the best. I think he is. I mean, Lindor, I know you could argue Lindor now, but it's different. Like Lindor's a really good shortstop, but like similar to Elster, Elster was about range, not a great arm, but range. That was Elster's thing. Ordonez was range and arm. I mean, Ordonez had an awesome arm. I mean, Lindor is really like Elster, a lot of range. Like think about it. Elster was about range, not the greatest arm in the world. Lindor doesn't have a bad arm, but I don't think it's the greatest arm. He more uses the the brain here. Yeah. And Elster, you know, that was always the 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 glue in that infield because he went through his errorless streak over a couple of years. It started in 88. He hits a home run. He makes the diving play down the left field line. He saved a run, I think, with a ground ball up the middle. He made a nice play to keep the ball in the infield on turf. There's another thing. How much turf do you see anymore? That's old school turf. But yeah, Elster was funny. And they mentioned Greg Jeffries, this prospect, Greg Jeffries, who's playing shortstop and second base. Think about it. Jeffries never played short in the big leagues. So a lot of – go back to the foreshadowing. And Jeffries was going to be somebody who was who would play a big part and then make it the postseason later that year because they were in the, the doldrums. as a five, They play in 500 ball. They got off to a good start. And Jeffries comes up, and that's when they go on their run late in the year. Yeah, you look at uh, Elster's stats that season uh... – Nine home runs, 37 RBIs, only bats 214. Uh, clearly the worst in the lineup of, of the the hitters. And I, I don't know what the feeling was uh, for you at the end of the season on Elster seeing that. Did you guys think that it, um, he felt overrated or No, you know what's funny back then? You were kind of just starting talk radio, and I was also 11 years old. I think the defense was something that, was always played up. He had a couple big home runs. I remember he hit a big home run against the Pirates, you know, later in that year in a one nothing game. He had pop. I think in that lineup, he was able to hide a little bit. 
the one thing about this team and what you saw on opening day in this ball game, that was really not an 88 Mets type of game. The 88 Mets were a team that would win three, nothing. They put up a crooked number and they'd shut you down. Their starting pitching was, they had a team ERA under three. Think about that under three, even guys like Sid Fernandez and Bobby Ojeda, who would be top of the rotation elsewhere were outstanding on this club. I think the Dodgers had slightly better team ERA than them, and they had Hershiser there having that historic season. So this was not a team. Now, the 87 team, if you go in a baseball reference and you look at historical offensive teams in Mets history, everybody remembers the 06 Mets and the 99 Mets. 87 Mets are up there. They had a really good offensive season. Their pitching fell apart that year. You figured you had that figured out going 88, but then it was weird. The pitching stepped up, but the offense took a Big step back was really carried by Strawberry McReynolds. Ironically, again, that was both of them hit a couple home runs on opening day. I think part of that is Carter decline, Hernandez decline. Elster didn't do much better than Santana on the offensive side. Hojo took a step back this year. So everybody kind of, other than Strawberry and McReynolds, took a step back. So those two guys kind of carried them offensively. This was very unlike what 88 would be. 88 was about pitching, pitching, and Strawberry McReynolds. So maybe Strawberry McReynolds' part, because of the two home runs they each hit. Um, and McReynolds had four hits. But everything else was very un-88 Mets-like because they were not a 10-6. They were not a, a 87 Mets were, not the 88 Mets. I think they even said it in the broadcast that the 87 Mets set a home run record at the time of all of Major League Baseball. I think it was like... It was 192. Yeah, a lot yeah, of home runs. They, they set the, the MLB record at that time. And I'm looking at Gary Carter... Gary Carter, 11, 40, 11 home runs, 46 RBIs. He batted 242. Keith Hernandez, 11 homers, 55 injured. RBIs. Very yeah, unlike injured. those two guys like that. And then you have, obviously, Kevin McReynolds, uh, 27, 99. There was a lot of talk with Kevin McReynolds that, you know, he was just, you know, an ordinary guy and – People didn't like that they had uh, traded Kevin Mitchell for him and 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 felt that that was you know a, a mistake. And obviously, uh, Kevin Mitchell goes on to win the the MVP. I think a year later in '89 uh, with the San Francisco Giants. Um, but what were your thoughts on on Kevin McReynolds? Uh, was he too quiet? So you're talking about so this is an interesting thing because my dad was a big Kevin McReynolds basher. He felt. He would only get hits when it didn't matter. So you look at his home runs in this ball game. His second home run was already like a tack on, right? It was like made it from nine four to ten four or something like that. So, but he also had some big home runs that year. I think this was the one year where you could argue that. But the thing about McReynolds was, uh, and shortly after eighty eight, which was his best season of the Mets, he got a little heavier. Um, he declined a little bit. His wife actually called – I don't know if you ever heard the story. His wife called WFAN yeah. complaining about them saying that he was fat. And if you want to talk about guys who got big, look at McReynolds in 87, 88, and go get a McReynolds photo from 90, 91, or maybe when he came back in 94, and he and he's heavy. He's really heavy. Uh, he was a guy that just – and I've had people around that team tell me he wasn't a bad guy. He just – he didn't necessarily like baseball other than it was a job. You know, it was a job for him. And and I didn't, you know, the thing about that team was Mitchell at that point had not established himself until the following year. But if you look at Mitchell's numbers with the Giants, he was still really good. You could probably put him in left field. Maybe defensively he wouldn't have been as good. But offensively, he when you look at the advanced metrics like OPS plus and OPS – he was a really good player. Now, I think eventually Kevin Mitchell, because he his body broke down and he had off-the-field issues, he probably would have blew up too. But you would have gotten a real – imagine a middle of the order of Strawberry, Kevin Mitchell, 89-90, Kevin Mitchell, who hit like 40 home runs, and Hojo. That's pretty good. I think Mitchell – while McReynolds was declining, Mitchell was – ascending i think that's the thing you weren't seeing that yet but there was always a feeling that mcreynolds was not clutch or mcreynolds wasn't doing what you wanted out of him because he was quiet and he didn't look the part of an 80s met at that point what a lot of people on joe McElvain, i think this was on john struble uh interview joe mack on his mets rewind 
the Mets loved McReynolds from back when he was in college. I think he had a knee injury and that forced them not to, they wanted to draft him. They eyed McReynolds for years. It was like one of those guys where eventually they were going to find. If you remember uh, Ellis Burks, you remember Ellis Burks? Yeah. That was another name back then that they were pining for when he was the Red Sox. Ellis Burks. So there was certain players they pined for. McReynolds was one, and that was Joe Mack, because McReynolds was a big-time college player at that point, what have you. Uh, but he had a great year, uh, and I'm trying to find, you know, he his, his uh, wins above replacement that year was 30th in baseball. It was right up there with guys like Andre Dawson and Ryan Sandberg. Um, you know, so Don Mattingly, he had a better year than Don Mattingly that year. So he was no slouch that year, but I think a lot of the feeling was he did it he was a compiler when things didn't matter. But that's not always fair because he had a big grand slam against the Cubs later that year. He had a big home run against the Pirates. Not so much in the postseason, you know. So, um, And he, he finished third in the MVP voting, right behind Strawberry, who finished second. And, I, you know, Kirk Gibson wins this award. And I'm trying to figure out, is this a sentimental well, award? Like- yeah. They split. The old thing was that the New York vote was split. And Gibson got it. So if McReynolds has a crap year, Strawberry gets more votes. Uh, you know, who knows if it was an anti-Mets. There's an anti-Mets component to the national media, too. Yeah, because Gibson Gibson does not lead in any category uh, in in the MVP race. And Strawberry leads in three uh, categories, uh, home runs, slugging, and OPS. And he clearly, uh, besides average, Strawberry was clearly the better player. I mean, here's the best. So there's, this is the game known for Strawberry. So here's the thing that's so frustrating. If this was today, we would know exactly where that ball hit. I still don't know where on the roof that ball hit. I suspect only those who are in the ballpark, Hubie Brooks, who played right field, the players in the dugout, fans that were at the game know exactly because we never got a clear, did it hit like, all the way up there where the roof is, you know, like where the roof was like the, the like the top of the soda bottle type, or did it hit right before? Cause there was like a little bit of a dome. It's like they took an outdoor stadium and dumped a dome on top of it. It wasn't built symmetrically in a lot of ways. It was like yeah. almost like a little bit weird. You could, you could tell it was retrofitted that roof with the Brown. And everything. <laughs> so they don't really tell you where it hit and they don't even tell you like you knew the ball came back. But did the ball come back because it never went over the fence or did it go over the fence? Like, you really don't know. You know that it was a bomb, but you don't know exactly where. And that's the part I wonder today. I mean, we would have stat cast like immediately and they would have all sorts of things going on like that. I mean, because the longest home run I've ever seen. Um, I mean, David Wright hit a pretty much a big home run off the uh, the luxury boxes at City Field. I was at that game. I've seen him do that. Uh, you know, I saw Pete Alonzo hit one into the upper deck uh, at City Field. Butch Husky hit one into the upper deck at Veterans Stadium. I've seen some long home runs, but, you know, I'm not sure that, um, you know, that uh, at the, off the bat, I wasn't sure if Strawberries was was going to be that. But it was a bomb for sure. That's for sure. Hey, I think they said something about, uh, I think Tim McCarver thought it hit off the lights. Yeah. The 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 lighting uh, that yeah. was there. So, you know, there, there's, like you said, there's no distinct knowing unless you probably were in the stadium. I, I would be interested to hear an interview with, with Hubie Brooks since he was playing right field at the time yeah. and see if, um, if he kind of can gauge or if he saw where it hit uh, at all. And, you know, Hubie Brooks was a former Met. And interestingly enough for him, he always played against the Mets very well. Uh, he had three RBIs in the game. He had a home run in the game. Dead center home run. It's like Dead anytime these guys run. leave, like Daniel Murphy, you got Hubie Brooks, and and then they have a a, a score to settle. And uh, that's right. Funny, that's right. funny too is that they had moved Hubie out of shortstop. He was supposed to be the shortstop, and they moved him. I yep. think his name was Juan Rivera. Luis they, Luis Rivera, yeah, Luis like a little Rivera? like typical nineteen eighties shortstop. Yeah, skinny. No power glasses. No, no good offense you at know, all. And and Hubie put up typical Hubie. Put Hubie in right field. Yeah, put yep. Hubie in right field. Who was a third home. baseman with the Mets. Yeah. Moved to shortstop and drove in 100 runs with Montreal. And if you look at that Gary Carter trade, by today's standards, the Mets gave up some talent. Hubie Brooks was a really good player. Herm Winningham was highly regarded. Mike Fitzgerald was a catcher at that point in time. And Floyd Yeomans was a top pitching prospect. 
and they gave him up for a catcher north of 30, which if you look at Carter's career at the Mets, you got three years out of him because 88, he was declined. 89, he was done. 88, he got off to a hot start. And by mid-year, he started to suppress for his 300th home run. And then, um, and then he was done. So Strawberry's the star of the show. I think that the other thing that you look at when they talk about his 39 home runs in 87, again, if you look at it into, in the prism of today, it's not that exciting. 39 home runs, it's good. That was a lot of yeah. home runs in 1987, 88. Well, like, even for the Mets, right? Even for the Mets, who was their top home run hit- hitter? I think maybe Rusty Staub in the 70s. Kingman, like Kingman had a couple Until of big Kingman years. You know, yeah. that's the other thing. You're seeing the, the Mets... Um, uh, um, you see the Mets, um, are um, uh, are are like just the beginning of their, of their uh, uh of, it's, it's like they're starting to, to build into their yeah. existence here. You know, yeah. Um, that type of thing. So Kingman would be a legend today. They love the two twelve hitters that hit forty fifty home runs a, a season. He would be he would be a highly sought out free agent right now um in yep. the vein of a uh, uh, like a Kyle Schwarber who hits like 200 but he'll give you 40 50 bombs a season these guys would be so much different nowadays for a guy like him uh who would probably be a top line free agent in the off season right absolutely at that point absolutely um from the broadcast anything else that you picked up while watching this uh this game one thing that I thought of was the the away jerseys. Now I have the hat actually from. Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's look at the Mets. The block. The block. The, NY. the block. Yankee style. New York. Now I don't know how fans felt about it then. I know if they would have did that now, people would be going nuts. Anything that is anything close to Yankee style, they would freak out about. It. I don't know how it was back then. If if jerseys were such a big uh, big deal back then. Um, but they did switch over like three years in a row. 88 was the, the away Jersey was the Mets in gray with the, with the stripes. 87 was the script, which is my favorite one. I like right. the, I wish they would bring that back. And then now they went to the kind of Yankee style, New York lettering. Yeah, that, that is one of them. Uh, future Mets coach, Dave Engel pinchets in uh, the game. I don't know if you picked up on that. He was a hitting coach for, uh, yeah. Bobby Valentine. I thought that was interesting. Some of the commercials. Now the commercials were cut out on this broadcast. We didn't get to see, but there was an inside pitch subscription. You remember inside pitch. I yep. don't know if that was before your time, uh, New York sports night, five Oh seven TIXX. Does that even exist anymore? I don't think that anybody calls five Oh seven. Yeah. T-I-X-X. I don't, I don't think so. I think those days are over because of the internet. Um, and just different ways you can buy tickets on the app. There was one commercial at the end of the game, and they did this during the broadcast too, where they were promoting a Subway series as if that was like with two the both teams that yes, they were going to be really that. good that it was going to come out I that these that. two teams would be in the World Series at some point. Yeah, that, and I think part of that is also the Yankees at the time weren't on MSG; they were also on Sports Channel. Um, a stat that came up, this was another thing I had in my notes, Doc Good in a 700 win percentage. That's crazy when you think about that. Yeah. Not sustainable. I mean, even, you know, the, when you really start to look at that, Doc had a, had a you know, was, like you said, he had a, he won 17 games that year. It was a little bit above league average. He was much more hittable, Doc, yeah. uh, in 88. Yeah, he went 18 um, and 9, and had a, but had a 319 ERA. Yeah, he was starting the to worst hittable. Of his ERA. I've, and I interviewed Doc, and I think the thing that people forget is that Doc, um, he had shoulder issues a couple of years later. So he was there were there were things physically, yes, the drugs and all that. There were things physically, um, you know. But what are you going to do? You know, that's 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 water under the. He was still getting the wins though, because you look yeah, at, and that's how people were judging it. Yeah. By today, you would not judge Doc. Like there would be talk about Doc not being as good, and that wasn't the case back then. You know, even when Doc had his shoulder, uh, his capsule surgery, a very serious surgery, and he talked about how it affected his curveball. Like, people were talking about him coming back from that. Like, that's years later. That's crazy when you think about it, you know? His first really bad season would come in 92. Yes. If you look at the long that's line of post, Yeah, that's post-capsule surgery. Yes. Yep. 10 and 13, 12 and 15, 
obviously he went three and four, and then I think they, you know, they they gave him the heave ho at after that. Right, right. So they have that. So Strawberry hits the roof. McReynolds hits a couple of home runs. Are there any other players that you saw that stood out to you on this on 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 the field? Anything anything interesting there? Um, besides Kevin Elster, uh, I would have to go to the other team. Um, there was a talk. Well, first, you know, Andres Galarraga. Uh, I always remember him as the Atlanta Brave and crushing the Mets, you know, every season. But in this, he was, you know, a very young. And I think it was a comment made by either Fran Healy or McCarver. We're talking about, you know, Whitey Herzog was always talking about Andres Galarraga. And he thought that he was the best right-handed first baseman since uh, Gil Hodges, which I thought was an uh, interesting uh, anecdote that they made there. And he finished his season. He went 29 home runs, 92 RBIs, and he batted 302 that season. A good a good year for Andres Galarraga, who at up to that point was a injury-prone player. Right. No, that's true. And and go back to that that team. You know, I, I didn't mention Galarraga earlier. Wallet, Galarraga, maybe Brooks was a solid hitter. Um, the other thing, Mitch Webster had a triple, like, in the first inning. He got out of the box quick. Like, yeah, that ball, which I thought maybe Strawberry should have caught. Um, but, he, I mean, you don't see triples like that anymore. You know, maybe the turf yeah. played into that with the ball bouncing around a little bit. I thought also in Olympic Stadium that the, the cars parked in center field. I do. Those always were weird. The cars out there. The car, it got, it had a feel of, I think big league ballparks today feel more like entertainment venues than back then. It was almost like they were playing in an airport hangar. Really? <laughs> it was like that, that. I know that that was built for the Olympics. Um, it was playing in an airport hangar. That's all, you know? And uh, that's the kind of weird part at that point, you know? Let me ask you this on one of the um, Montreal players and it's the starter Dennis Martinez you had talked about uh in your podcast about the Hall of Fame vote do you think he's a Hall of Famer he's got 245 wins I know the he's got 193 losses but he had some really good seasons well it's funny I had this in my notes that you bring it up and I'll bring up Dennis Martinez they he do you remember McCarver bringing up Gary Carter and Colton Fisk for the Hall of Fame yeah and actually saying how the bar for the Hall of Fame, which he was right. And you could argue because there's some guys that got elected during those times that, you know, um, you could debate whether they're Hall of Famers today, how the bar for the Hall of Fame was really high. And yeah, I was laughing because I feel like, especially with this Billy Wagner conversation now, that we've swung the pendulum the opposite way. You're right. 240. He's very Bartolo Colones. No, he's not a Hall of Famer. You know, he... He declined because I think he had an out al- and, and I think they talk about the drugs and alcohol permeating throughout the league. He had that issue with the Orioles and he got dumped and it, it, the, basically the Expos picked him up off the scrap heap, but he was pretty good. Like his from 87 till about 91, 90, I would say actually 1992, his Expos years, 93. I would say that version of Dennis Martinez was probably borderline Hall of Famer, but I don't think because his Orioles years weren't all that great after the because obviously off the field stuff. I think if he gets off to a better start with the Orioles back in earlier in his career, maybe there's more of a conversation. But I think the peripheral numbers are just not a strikeout guy, high ERA. He's a really solid Bartolo Colon. I would call him. I would consider him yeah. like Bartolo Colon, like maybe Carlos Carrasco type of pitcher. Um, certainly better in certain years, but somewhere along those lines. I mean, his 1991, he led the league in ERA and finished fifth in the Cy Young Award. But he was a guy, even though he struck out a number of Mets that day, he didn't strike out a lot of guys. He was a control pitcher. He was a guy that, you know, and that's and that's the thing, you know, a lot of these guys that you saw, there was a lot of contact. I go back to what I said in this game, and it's very noticeable. And I don't think, we talk about the hitters today and the uppercut and all that stuff. But I don't think it's just that. They're just not throwing as hard. They're physically not. There is a physical difference to the athletes today with the training. And yes, you can argue, and and I know this always is going to come up. We could do any one of these 
you know, movie nights of, uh, from the 80s, the 90s, the 70s, even from 10 years ago. And we could have this conversation. But the players today, everybody's throwing hard. Everybody yeah. knows how to throw hard. We could argue about the command and the control. They just weren't able to throw hard. There was guys not throwing strikes. Doc wasn't throwing strikes. Uh, you Look at the breakdown. I showed it to you in the box score. Uh, but, you know, he just, even Doc, I don't think at his pr- prime was throwing over 100 all the time. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, and some of these guns, maybe they're hot, um, but maybe I'm wrong. I'm not like even looking at uh, Randy St. Clair. His ball strike count was 9-8. Just because you're you're not throwing hard, you're still not throwing strikes. Andy McGaffigan, uh, five strikes. Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, eight pitches, five five strikes. Uh, Bob McClure, seven pitches. Five, like, that's actually better. But, you know, a lot of, you know, 50-50. And yeah. Dennis Martinez, you know, 63 strikes, 35 balls. That's not vintage command and control Dennis Martinez either. It was a weird game. Also, one of the things back then, because pitchers, usually the first uh, game at a spring training, they were monitoring. I remember back then they'd monitor their pitch count a little bit, and they'd make them maybe go maybe six, seven innings. They wouldn't push them that first start. It was almost like they were building them up. Um, you wouldn't see like nine, you know, nine inning. Com- the 80s were, that part of the 80s, they were starting to, you know, monitor pitchers a little bit more at that point and stuff like that. And look, Davey went to the bullpen in the sixth inning with Cone which was a weapon that they used a lot in April until Aguilera gets hurt. And that was something they talked about. Well, Cohen's never going to make the rotation unless somebody underperforms yeah. against hurts. Aguilera got hurt within two weeks, three weeks, and he was in the rotation at that point. So that was interesting at that. So did you enjoy your trip back to the 1980s, Anthony Rivera? Are we, do we, did, you know, I'm trying to figure out, uh, you know, did you get your tie-dye shirt what else would be part of the 80s at that point i don't know you know your et poster up in your in your room. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. back to up? the future uh <laughs> you know back yeah, to I, back to the future you know it, it's uh, it's interesting to watch it now considering all the storylines we already know when you're watching it back then and you're listening to it as a kid you know it, it's a different feel but like when you brought up the whole thing with Lenny Dykstra and how David Cohn, now that we know what we know, like you kind of smirk a little bit. You kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, because now you know what's happened throughout their careers. And you look back, it's like, oh, a little bit of foreshadowing yep, here. There's a little bit so of much foreshadowing. Here. Yeah, so much. Oh, and you, and I have to bring this up, you as a Devils fan, the Devils made the playoffs for the yes. first time. And they were promoting the Devils Islanders game one the 88 NHL playoffs, which the Isles would beat the Devils in that series. And remember, that's an Islanders team that's still Al Arbor. They have, they, they're not too far removed from four straight Stanley Cups. No, it was, it was that it, they, 84, they, they, I think they got beat by the run. Oilers. Yeah. So you're in, like, that's some vintage it is. hockey it at really that is. point. You know, Islanders post dynasty starting to decline. Devils. You know, awful team that used to be the Colorado Rockies going to New Jersey. Awful, awful, awful. They make the playoffs. Like Gary Thorne, who was a Mets announcer, was their announcer. And the Edmonton Oilers are, you know, Messier. You know, yeah. uh, I think Gretzky would get traded to the Kings that summer. So they still have Gretzky on Edmonton at that point. So you still you got some vintage hockey going on over there. Yeah, right. a lot of uh, a lot of nice little throw-ins, little tidbits in there. And I even had to... I even had to look up Sports Channel and see, like, what was the deal? How did that play out? Because I started watching baseball. It was uh, Fox Sports Net. <laughs> that they, they were the regional yeah, sports uh, powerhouse Channel, at the time. Fox took it over. I, I think Sports Channel existed until, like, 95. Um, that was the home of the Mets Sports Channel. The Knicks were on MSG with the Rangers. Uh, it, it was a way – it's hard because back then, again, I, I didn't have cable. But the Knicks and the Rangers on MSG, the Yankees and the Mets were on Sports Channel. The Yankees eventually would go to MSG sometime in the 90s. And that was a big deal. Then the Yankee, they had that. And the Mets would go to MSG as well, if you remember. I think in 99 or 2000, MSG had every, like at one point, the Madison Square Garden Network had everybody. Yeah. And then they messed around, if you remember, with they started playing, you know, fighting with Cablevision. And all that, you know, Cablevision and MSG Network and all that other stuff was going on with Dolan. And uh, no, that was with DirecTV because he had he had Cablevision. So he was trying to get everybody back to Cablevision. He was fighting with DirecTV and that 
And then everybody, you know, SNY was created and the Yes Network, and that's it. The Yes Network kind of started the domino where MSG was becoming what it is now, you know, hockey basketball at that point. Yeah. And all that no, stuff. Yeah. So, so, so now that we've had our first, did you enjoy your, I mean, I, it's funny because we tried this out. You never know how this is going to go. You, you know, you, people say you're going to do pitch by pitch. No, I mean, in general, the Mets win the game 10 6. Doc doesn't have a lot going on. Strawberry hits the home run. Lenny Dykstra hits a, a, you know, six home runs for the Mets. That's a ton of home runs. Like that's a team record at that point. I don't know how many yeah. times they've hit six home runs in a game. I'm sure. I think they've hit more than that. You know what? You know what? Before we get off here, and Strawberry hit, I think it was three opening day home runs in his first at bat throughout his, you know, throughout that time. So from the time he came up, he had hit three home runs. And they were all in the first at bat on opening day. I mean, he was just always I, I felt like he was like David Wright when I used to watch him on opening day hitting a home run. Yes, the Mets would the Mets would hit eight home runs. How can I forget this game? Eight home runs against the Phillies in August of twenty fifteen. They basically took the Phillies to slow pitch softball. That was the that was the return of Wright, right? That they was the return Philly. of Wright. So that that one ups the Mets six home runs on opening day. Do you know what the top song was on April of nineteen eighty eight? Mm, no, I do not. Or the, even the, Jackson, like the top movie, the right? Man in the Mirror. From Michael Jackson? Yeah. Uh, Yes, Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror. And the number one movie, uh, according to Billboard, was uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I remember seeing that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember seeing that. <laughs> so, but yeah, this is this this was a fun to do um to look back at these games. Obviously like people who want pitch to pitch, you're going to be you would have to sit with us for 3 hours and 41 minutes. I don't think I think No, I don't think they want to do that. Then, it was and right? it was look, we watched 3 hours and 40 something minutes without commercials being in there. Yeah. Commercials in there. That was probably that game started at 3 something, 3:30. It was three hours and three or three minutes. That's six days. That game didn't end until after seven o'clock, which in the eighties is a big the, deal. Uh, doing the 86 uh, NLCS game six or yeah, yeah, NLCS yeah, yeah, yeah. game five against the Braves, which was like a five hour affair. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, this was fun. What do you got? What do you, you so Super Bowl weekend pitchers and catchers around the corner. We do our little movie night. We got to try to do this again. I don't know. If you had a pick, I'll leave you with, let's leave it with this. If you had a pick, what would be the next game you'd love to do a movie night on? Um, ooh. Piazza's first game is a good one, I that think. That might be an interesting um, one. The whole way the trade went down. Right. Everything leading up to that. That's a good one from that 90s era. Uh... The uh, 2006 uh, Cardinals Mets, the uh, Carlos Delgado's hitting home runs, who hosts hitting home runs. Yeah, there's a lot of good and, ones. You know, yeah. Carlos Beltran ends it. So there, there are a couple good ones out there. Those right. are the two top ones that come to my head. There. there you go. There you go. Well, Anthony, this has been fun. Hopefully the fans enjoyed us going down memory lane. Mets 88 opening day. There'd be a lot more drama to come we didn't even get into that 88 the drama we just talked about this game in this snapshot who would have thought that 10-6 opening day victory with strawberry hitting the roof was just the beginning of the end of the Mets dynasty it would be uh nearly 10 years before they get back to the postseason so you be well enjoy the rest of your uh, weekend enjoy the Super Bowl before you know it you and I are back at this thing pitchers and catchers oh, yeah. and it should be a fun uh 20 it should be an interesting I don't know if it's fun should be an interesting 2024 season. So thanks a lot, my friend. I appreciate you coming on tonight. I appreciate it. Thanks All so right. much, Mike. Take care. That's Anthony Rivera, Subway to Shea, and our first movie night, Mets opening day victory, 10-6 over the Montreal Expos. Strawberry hits the roof. Lenny Dykstra's home run. Tons of fun things that we talked about regarding the Mets and Expos of that game and that season. So... I want to thank everybody for tuning in to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. You can check me out all the time at the TalkingMetsPodcast.com. You can get me on X at TalkingMetsNoG. And, of course, on your favorite podcasting service, Apple, Spotify, whichever you desire. I'm all over the place. 
if you want to interact with me, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silvat, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. And don't forget the newsletter, Substack.com slash at No G. And I want to thank the good folks from the fan side of Podcasting Network for supporting the show. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the Super Bowl. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Till then, take care, everybody. American Giant makes the durable, comfortable spring closet staples you need for work, the gym, and even happy hour. Made in America. Designed to last a lifetime. Get 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with code STAPLE20.